0: art salon today's guest is the great hokan hardenberger the response to the first episode has been tremendous and i want to thank you for your support we are now available on every major podcast streaming service including spotify and apple podcast please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite service and follow us on instagram at the art salon for future episode announcements last episode i talked to bob malone and although i wanted to hold off to release my conversation with hokan these two episodes can only go together for those of you who don't know, Hokan Hardenberger is arguably the greatest classical trumpet soloist of all time, and the only one active today who is a regular at the most important concert halls in the world with the finest orchestras. I cannot say anything about Hokan that hasn't already been said a million times or written down in thousands of concert programs and record booklets since the late 80s. He is, without a doubt, the finest artist to have ever held a trumpet in his hands in the classical music world. Period. End of sentence. Game. Set. And match. There's an old adage that warns us, never meet your heroes. I suspect whoever said that had some pretty shitty heroes, or was an unbelievable bore to his idols. I've had nothing but success in this arena. Hokan is an artist to the core, and his love for culture is palpable in the tenacity of his life's project. All trumpet players are in this colossus' debt, and in the interest of slightly repaying him his gifts, I wish to introduce his most authentic self to all those who have not had the distinct pleasure of being in his company. His zest for life is unparalleled, and his love of it should be a lesson for us all. Hokan stands practically alone in the trumpet world in his commitment to excellence and his artistic integrity, refusing to ever take the easy way out instead of burrowing into deeper artistic avenues. At the same time, he refuses to ignore his audiences and treats them with no contempt, acknowledging their intellectual curiosity. It is possible that some listeners will tune out before reaching one of the golden moments of my conversation with Hokan today, so I will highlight his words here. Music education, especially on our instrument, cannot be to play a hundred orchestral excerpts perfectly just so I can have a position in one of those institutions. I mean, that cannot be the meaning of life. It is not possible. The meaning of life as a musician must be to be a musician and be active in an organic music life where a beautiful, great, traditional symphony orchestra is one of the possibilities. But it cannot be that if I'm not successful learning these orchestral excerpts, I'll have to go find a job doing the dishes in some restaurant. I mean, it cannot be like that. We cannot allow it to be like that. I cannot stress enough how important this is to me. We have all been complicit as students and educators in stifling the possibilities of creative minds by damning everyone to a single path, one that is now not even likely lucrative or safe as members of the Metropolitan Opera House are having to move back in with their parents. In his aesthetic letters, Schiller invokes Horace's old adage, Sapere aude, dare to be wise. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and find in it enough inspiration to dare to be wise. Dare to be brave, and dare to bring the world you imagine into being, because that is what Hokan Hardenberger has done with his life, and we are all the better for it. I welcome Hokan Hardenberger to the art salon, and hope you will walk away wiser than you came in. <laughs> <laughs> No, so, you know, I, I had an amazing time talking to Bob uh, because we were talking mostly about Tom and, uh, you know, his very close relationship with him, which was very weird, I think, for all of us, because Tom was nobody's daddy, as I like to say now that, that he's gone and everyone's pretending like he was daddy to all of them. <coughs> You know, I think Bob had a different relationship, so it was a lot of fun talking to him about it. But he brought up, you know, Tom calling him to let him know that if there were these two European trumpet players that were going to come and if he would house them in his house. He told me fun stories about scaring the crap out of you in a car and you getting him back. Uh,
1: <laughs> An ongoing story.
0: <laughs> so, you know, I was, we, I've been thinking a lot about Tom, obviously, because it's two years coming and it's interesting how his legacy lives on kind of quietly but you know i I wanted to talk to you about a bunch of things i have in mind but why don't we start with why don't we start with what leads you at the time that you graduate the paris conservatory which you were already kind of entering prominence what leads you to come to la on uncertain terms to (laughs) meet tom stevens for some lessons
1: yeah i mean i had met tom in i think i am pretty sure the first time I met him in person was in in Moudon, where jean pierre mathz was organizing uh wonderful get togethers similar i would think to 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 chosen veil i mean i was i was a little kid um fourteen fifteen or something like that and and we I remember we went down in a car with with matthias person who's now trumpet in Monte Carlo, solo trumpet in Monte Carlo, Orchestra, and his mom and his brother and we drove down and a <coughs> very weird road trip. And But there was Thibaut, Tom, Stamp all at the same time. And this I think for, for generations growing up now is difficult to imagine. I mean there was no such thing as 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 getting together on the internet or or meeting Tom on the internet. So Tom was this figure that I've heard on on LPs. And then he was coming to Switzerland. Actually, I had heard him and maybe even said alone to him before. There, There was a great, great brass conference in Montreux. So obviously, again, Switzerland, even a year or two before that, where I, I think I just said hello then, and then there was the course um, that Mateis organized, where we could really work. You know, you 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 got got close and had lessons, and and, um, I remember he was also very comforting in one way because I had in Montreux. I had also met Dokshitzer, Timofey Dokshitzer, who came to Montreux with a, you know, with a. KGB officer next to him and, and uh, translator. It was said, <laughs> but I had I, I was I was really bold. You know, I I, I walked up to these two gentlemen in ties and, and I said, "Can I have a lesson?" And I guess he was so surprised that he didn't he couldn't say no. So I had a short lesson with with sir in in Montreux. And in those days, I don't know why, but my 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 neck would. Sort of go out sideways. sideways. So I, I suppose I didn't have enough muscles in the in the neck area, to, and I was using a lot of air. Uh, so when I played, it would go out. You, you could see the neck expand. And doctors have made a real big deal out of that. And he said that has to stop because otherwise you you will never be successful. And I and. That was dramatic, you know, I, I, was, I was devastated by this news that, you know, I, and I, how do you stop that? I had no idea. And so shortly after I met Tom and we talked about it, and he said, no, no, it's no problem, as long as it doesn't go out in, in the front, you know, where it's creating tension. And anyway, should you have a great problem, we'll just send you to Jacobs in Chicago, he said. <laughs> so there was like a practical solution. That, and he... Was very comforting, but much more importantly, I mean, it was the first glimpse into his his uh, mind and how he how he thought about. Uh, he had already published um, a couple of those first books, changing meters um, studies and and his um, contemporary studies. It was also a way of understanding Stamp and Thibaut. It was it was you know it's, it was an organic mix the three of them because it was very clear that in a way of course they were all talking about the same thing but the words were different and this is of course the perfect situation for a 15 year old curious little guy because you you will have you will have so many possible levels to enter the information and then we would play his his uh, and signals and all sorts of versions and shapes. And, and, uh, and I remember also having a record for him to sign where he signed in memoriam Chet Baker, who by the way was still very alive. And in memoriam Chet Baker and good luck with the career on the viola da gamba. I had no idea how to take that information when I was 15, I have to admit. Uh, I still have the record to prove it though. And and still after that, I guess that course must have lasted about a week or or 10 days or something like that. Can't really remember. But it kept me intrigued about him and it was, I just only scratched the surface of, but it was, after that we met on several occasions and it was kind of clear, there, there was like an, an understanding that when I had finished uh, with Thibaut, I would, I would come and, and see him. And uh, that's what happened when, when, when Marcus Stockhausen and I, um, I then had a, I'd won a competition in, in Toulon, in France and and had some money. So I I, I did a tour of the States and and, and met Voisin and you know, several players all around, Herseth again and, and so on. Jerry Schwartz. But ended up in, in Los Angeles at the same time as as Marcus Stockhausen and I remember we had a we we rented together this uh, rent a wreck. And I can tell you, a, rent, a rent-a-wreck in, in 1981, this must have been, uh, was something completely uh, different to what it's now. It would have been a car from sort of late 60s. Uh, huge absolutely huge and it made a noise when you when you took the course in even at low speed it made a noise and you thought you were in some car chase with Steve McQueen it it was it was great fun and we would we would practice together and go for lessons and go and listen to Freddie Hubbard in the evening or or, or other players It, it was a really really great time and of course also the first encounter with Bob Malone, who by then was, had just started. So again, the the information came together at sort of different levels and adds up to something that becomes a really important mix, you know. That month with Tom, then I really started to understand more what it was about. I, I had already, I'd always thought that he was about, the control that he had, this enormous control. I thought he was either doing yoga or taking strange pills or really into in a game of tennis or something. something. But it was not at all that. It was all about understanding the text, the text in music, and, and finding control through your intellectual understanding of that text, um, giving you such a solid... Um, foundation for what you want to do that you can then ultimately achieve freedom after that so I, that, that was the first month and then I always knew that, that sooner or later I have to come back and have a, a longer stretch and a few years later I think 84 when my career had already kind of gently started I, I had a Scholarship, Swedish state scholarship, and a certain amount of money, and I kept contacting Tom and asking how long I could be there. And I mean, you've heard a story, but uh, it's a fun story, so I'll tell it. And and I kept contacting him, and then no, no real answer, you know, answering service, and sort of vague hints that yeah, you can come. And but finally, I I, I, I just went. And I, I phoned his answering service and said, I hope you're in L.A. because on Sunday I'll be at the Hollywood um, Holiday Inn. And then that, I arrived and I fell asleep. And then in the evening there was a phone call and he was downstairs in, in his shades and his Porsche And That's how that stretch started. And then I was there for a couple of months and really very, very intense and, and lessons basically every day
0: so we don't have to get into it, but I was interested that you, in the conversation we had for Chosen Veil, you talked a lot about, and Bob said the same thing, how most of the lessons were just uh, these musical games, seemingly silly things that turned out to be incredibly meaningful and change your whole perception, which was always how I viewed Tom, that, that he changed in the five years I knew him, he changed completely the way I understood music with these, Seemingly silly little games.
1: Yeah, it was never ser- silly. He he was always he was always very serious. Yes, and, and, for and sure. <laughs> quite quite. There was quite a big amount of fear from my side of it, primarily fear of not understanding at all, because there was so it was like a giant questions were put to your mi- mind and always mixed in with long, long stories from the past involving people that he kind of took for granted that that you knew who they were, you know, whether they were someone in Stravinsky's surroundings or a trumpet player in New York in the 40s or or a conductor or his assistant or... uh, it was taken for granted, and then when you didn't know, you felt, "Oh, I'm so stupid," and you found you would you would find out, and of course, in those days, no Google, so no <laughs> no immediate satisfaction on that, on that uh, part. so you, you really had to look for it and invest in your own mind to see if this was important information or possibly not. and and uh, oh, I had a real nightmare. The first time I was going, I, I, was, I remember I, I, I got out in the airport and I took a taxi and his address was Mulholland Terrace. And the taxi driver didn't, he, he, he thought, he, there was this long, long, very big road called Mulho- Mulholland Drive. But that goes halfway through California, it, it turned out, and all, almost all my money was already finished by the time of that <laughs> taxi ride. Oh, that was terrible. Then by the time I, I found my way, part of the great thing was as, as you approached his house, you would hear uh, the next door neighbor practicing guitar, and that was Frank Zappa. You know, and for a little boy from Sweden, that was, that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's great.
0: I didn't know that. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. And then it, and then it continues. You know, he'd, he'd be welcoming you and he'd just come in for a run or something like that. You very rarely have the trumpet out for the lessons. It would be a, ta- a cassette tape with 32 versions of, of Chet Baker playing My Funny Valentine and listen to this and we'll talk about it, and then we never did. Uh, lots of things like that. And a lot of games, as you say, on, on the text to make you see the important information in the text. Saxe etudes transposed, changing the transposition at last second, and then insisting on, on how you saw the, the structure in the music rather than pushing down the right fingers.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess I was, like, what I meant by silly is what always gets to me, and we've had moments like this in Lessons Together, it's uh, this thing that you think you can do, you can't do. You know, like, oh, can you read 3-4? Of course I can read 3-4, no problem. Yeah. Okay, no, you can't.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely.
0: For me, I think when I met him, you know, Chosenville was such a revelation revelation for me in that regard because I grew up in a family where my grandfather was a deep academic and I just had never met in music an academic. And even to this day, I haven't met one. But there's people like Tom that are the closest thing, which is their volume of information in their head is beyond what you're used to. And they reveal it to you in a way that you get it too. And it's astounding.
1: Yes, and almost with the sort of... I mean, that would be the same for all my three crazy teachers, you know, ho- however demanding and, and tough and, and, and difficult or, or, or mysterious their ways, it, it w- always had the deepest respect for the, the receiving person uh, and, and making, of course, you feel that you have discovered it, which is the greatest teachers. You know, it's, it's not just saying here it, it is and this is how it should be, uh, period. Uh, it's uh, it, it really giving you the feel that you discovered it.
0: Yeah, and it's so long lasting when you have that. Yes. Yeah, and g- now that you mentioned them, I was talking to Gustav about <laughs> Bu Nielsen and uh, how lucky he was. And of course you were, and uh, how strange it is that you have another one of these people just happens to be living in Momo at that time. I know you've talked about your relationship with him and how patient and kind of he, he tricked you into it, into becoming who you are. How was that, that dynamic? I mean... With Boo? Yeah.
1: Oh, I mean, that was that of course started so early in life that it's, it's difficult to see what is real memories and what is what, is, what has become a, a story. You know, I was eight when, when it started. I, there, I had no... Relation to music. I mean, we, there was no classical music in the family, and um, there was such an intensity. And I, and I mean, I, 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 he's said in interviews that I was. There was no end to how much I wanted to. It was like. It was like. One of those, you know, birds, the little birds, when the, their parents come and feed them. They just keeps the beat, <laughs> so just open, 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 open. And so we would have already from day one, I mean, one and a half hour lessons. And he was, he was, he was patient, but he was, he would, I'm sure Gustav says the same that he, He'd almost never say that anything was any good. I mean, he, he, would, he wouldn't say that it was, oh, that's terrible. Or, but he, he, you know, he would just mutter. And, 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 and uh, he would, if it was good, he would say that was almost good. <laughs> <laughs> and he would certainly never say to my face that I was a talent or something like that. But I mean, I never had the feeling I was a talent. I don't think I was, actually.
0: Do you feel that that helped?
1: The feeling that I, yeah. I mean, I had I had had strong self confidence, but I didn't think I was a a talent. I think I was uh, very good at putting one and one together and and make it three. Um, I was I was I was hardworking for sure because I I I loved it from day one, and I mean that's that's where his role comes in, I think he, he, if he finds the right person, he, he really makes you fall in love with instrument and with music. If he saw that happen, he wouldn't let go. He could sit and listen to a student for, for three hours, or, you know, I remember one time, I don't know what the problem was, I was probably about nine or 10, but for one week he said, you have to come every day this week. So my poor parents had to drive me into town every evening that week. It was important. I, I can't. I have no idea what it was. It's one of my regrets in life that I never got to do. I had plans when they were still alive, the three of them, to do a book from their perspective and mine. Would have been interesting, at least for me, to see that. Because again, what what is what is stories and what what is what is reality?
0: Well, but certainly, I think that the thing that I find interesting about the three of them in relation to you too is uh, n- none none of them, none of the three are remembered as particularly... I mean, I don't know how to phrase this because I don't want to make it sound like they were negative because they weren't. But none of the, none of the three were particularly encouraging to bad behavior, if that makes sense.
1: It makes sense. Um, I don't know how to phrase
0: it, but I think you know what I mean.
1: I think I know where we're on to, but, but it, 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 there were also three, all three of them, strangely enough to me, but, but it was obvious already then when I was very young that they were people who could make others feel uncomfortable. There were people who made quite a lot of enemies because they were all three of them extremely outspoken and they were outspoken because they had no choice. They could be quiet, but when they spoke, they said their thoughts, they, you know, and that could make, make people uncomfortable. I don't think they were trying to be provocative, but they certainly made, made enemies. And I had, I I early, very early, and um, could see the danger for myself that I would be used not by them, but by others as, as, a, as a weapon. And I, I saw the danger in that very early and, and was, was careful.
0: It still happens, but at that time, particularly. Yes. Yeah. And, and it did happen, even though we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> uh, but Tom talked about that. I mean, I, uh, he talked about. ARD where the the competition was you don't have to say it i'll say what tom said tom said in in reverse order you had the most successful careers by the prices awarded.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean the, the competitions are are a, a, a strange thing because they really do bring out the worst in people people's behavior it, it's kind of like uh, presidential elections uh, but they also they were great. I mean, that's how I met Steve Burns, and that's how I met Reinhold Friedrich and 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 uh and Marcus. I think I met first time in Munich and then and then in LA. So you also make friends and you understand quite a lot about other people and yourself. They they are very strange things. I don't know how many of them really exist anymore, or there are more, but they are sort of diluted in their importance. Uh those days there were only a few and they and they they meant something i think
0: yeah i had a, a fun one of these with luca and his brother his brother's a very good pianist and we were comparing and contrasting the and i could have had this conversation with ryan bancroft too the difference between what it means when you win the top you know van cliburn or something like that versus any trumpet competition. And even though it's not simple to make a career as a solo pianist, there really there is a reason to win these competitions, and both financially, but also because they can actually spell the beginning of a career. I don't think that's true for any trumpet competition. I mean,
1: it used to be for the ARG. That, that used to be the sort of because that's the one that Maurice won. And then he made a career, so you know, I mean, we uh, there are there hasn't been so many trumpet solos. Let's face it, and 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 so he he won that one, and he made a career. So therefore, that's been said to be. It also used to be serious in its programming. I, it's it's important to look at the program.
0: Well, that was another big uh, part of the talk we had. I I sustain that I think the problem with the competitions is that they haven't accepted the reality of our current. Musical climate that I understand the repertoire chosen in Maurice's era for that competition, but starting with Tom, but m- I mean, mostly you and a handful of others have expanded our possibilities, and and these things should have been adopted years ago. It's it's not even that they should be adopted now. It's that uh, it's kind of ridiculous that it's still thought that you can make a career playing solely the Tomasi trumpet concerto and the Jolive and piccolo trumpet baroque music, which. Yes, You know,
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's just not real. This will be a good transition. One thing that always gets me when I hear interviews of trumpet players with you is that they always ask you about your strange choice in repertoire and if you've ever considered playing anything different. And then nobody f- mentions the fact that you're the only one actually making a living doing it. So maybe we should all be doing what you're doing instead of the other way around. What, what actually led you to start commissioning that repertoire? I mean, I'm sure it couldn't have been easy considering what agents even still demand of potential trumpet soloists.
1: When I first started, I mean, all through my studies, even before Paris, I, I guess I kept my kind of naive outlook and my, my, my thought that music is like that. I mean, look at, look at Haydn's time when 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 haydn's trumpet concerto was premiered everything that was played was contemporary music older things like bach was considered dusty and 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 terrible and and that went on for quite a long time i would say even into the last century it was like that i always thought that that's how it should be. And, and, and it was very clear from the word go that the trumpet didn't have enough. I mean, that even when I was still studying here, I would, I would go to student friends and ask, would they write something? And it was just a completely natural part uh, of things. And the, also the, the Baroque revival started very early I mean that's that had already started in the 70s and Ed Tar and natural trumpets and uh, and the very early early music groups were had already it it, it was clear that the the very beautiful however beautiful way uh, playing baroque music on the piccolo with a in a certain, I mean, that style of playing was already going out of, I mean, you can call it fashion, but, but it's, it's, it's of course deeper than that. It, it was just clear that that had to move on. And also for, if you wanted to be taken seriously, if you wanted the trumpet to be taken seriously as a solo instrument, I mean, many people claim it couldn't ever be taken seriously as a sole instrument. Even Tom said it can't be because the reper- there is, we don't have the core repertoire of, of, of what the symphony orchestras are, are doing all the time. <clears throat> now, I was so naive, I even thought that it was in America that it was, it was going to be the most open. and I very soon realized that it was absolutely the opposite. There, there was another person who came into my life early on because that was having finished in Paris or about to finish in Paris. I was engaged by the Malma Orchestra here to play Haydn. And they were clever because they hired the former trumpet player, Elga Howard, to conduct that concert. By that time, we had never, ever met. And it didn't take many seconds of, of talking until we realized that... that I mean, he he saw he heard my playing, and we talked, and I, I talked about my my dreams, and you know, there was someone who was who was um, twenty years older than me or more, but 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 or could have been my father. We became really very good friends, and and he was then I would say as important as my teachers because he was with the London, having been one of the founders of the London Sinfonietta the conductor of, of the, the Ligeti, Grand Macabre, in Stockholm, the premier, he was, he was really in the modern music scene. And when he heard about my, my dreams and my ideas about the trumpet and what the trumpet could and should do, it, that was uh, music to his ears, let's say. Um, and, and, uh, and he then helped with, with all these first connections to Bert Whistle, which became the first, the first important commission. But also before that, the Proms commission, Gordon Cross, and and uh, you know meeting Len uh, Takemitsu, Gruber, at all came through Elgar Howard. Um, and I never saw it as as a tactic. It, it was the way I wanted to to express myself. It was not that I thought, you know, I mean, I would have been really stupid if I thought that that would would be the way to make money, because that was clear that modern music was not necessarily the money way. The money way would have been the more entertaining side of things. And of course, early on, I had the Philips contract and they were from the start more interested in, you know, a Haydn and a trumpet and organ, but it was early enough in times they were not cynical people. You could talk to them. You could say that, oh yeah, sure, I'll do a trumpet and organ if I can do baritussu. There there was there was room for discussion. You know, I think nowadays uh, people in those positions they will just say no. You know, that's not what we do. If you want to do that stuff, you go there.
0: Was there at any point in that though? I mean, I understand what you're saying about it being different times, but did anyone recommend that you didn't go that path, that you wait a little bit and do it when you're more established or something like that? Because I, I've always thought, and not knowing anything about it, but uh, from before meeting you, I always thought what a bold and brave thing to do for a young, up and coming person to leverage the pleasurable things for a label with these things that not only had never been done, but also, probably scared the crap out of them,
1: you know, I had been so marinated in in this thinking, having been around people like tom and and boo and uh, so early in life, my opinions were so clear that i I would not have had it any other way. I remember um, a little bit what you were saying i was uh, I remember. One, when one of my first tours was being planned in Germany with, with you know the typical trumpet and chamber orchestra tour and they wanted me to play some, some Piccolo Baroque. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And I remember discussing it with Boo and I said, I said, should I insist? Do you think I can insist on having one, one old piece and one, and one new in the same program? And I remember his answer very well because he said, "If you don't do it, who's going to do it?" And I really, early on, not only did I want to do it, which was the deepest feeling, but I also did have a strong sense of responsibility for 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 the for the future of how how this part. Because I, I I felt I was being very fortunate. I was given things. I was given you know, great teachers, I was given opportunities. I, I, I would have fe- felt really bad if I didn't use it to, to a, a purpose that had not only to do with, with me as a person. I'm not not trying to be the Saint Hokan of the <laughs> Holy Trumpet, you know, it's not what I'm saying, but I, I, I remember that, that feeling as being very strong. I still feel that to a certain extent, you know, you we, we were given things, but we should we should we should do something with it. Yeah, and I think
0: increasingly more with recording technology becoming what it's becoming. I mean, you might not be able to put a symphony orchestra together and record them, but the excuses are falling away to me at an alarming rate uh, to continue the charade that the trumpet repertoire goes up till 1954 and for relatively minor composers, considering. What you're leaving behind, and even what Marcus left behind with his father. I right? just think it's, it's no longer a good excuse to me.
1: No. I and mean, even things like, you know, when, when Ed Tarr passed away, I mean, it didn't take much to prove that Homo concerto is in E. You just have to look at the score, for Christ's sake. Um, <laughs> and, but then, then people have all sorts of theories that because it was there, then the trumpet was blah, blah, blah. The, the piece is in E, okay? And he, he, and me and Reinhold recorded it in E, and we thought that well, now we at least we've come to that point. And then people just happily take a step back and go back to E flat because it's uh, more more practical.
0: Well, and it's also that one that example in particular is is crazy to me because in the same breath that they do this, they call themselves soloists. A lot of people teach this to their students. And again, going back to the, what you're saying, holding yourself accountable and being realistic, what piano player that any of us know, even a minor one or even one who's a student, would say, this sits better for me in D major, even though Mozart wrote it in, in C sharp major. But, you know, I made the decision and it's good. I mean, nobody, you know.
1: No. But, you know, people, I, I, there was a time when I, that would make me really angry I, People make their choices, and, and
0: you know a lot of the excuse that was always given for not taking up some of the things that you had pioneered, not just the pieces that you had written for yourself, which okay, you can have an excuse that they're written for a specific person, I don't have these traits, etc. But I think one of your big early triumphs was also reviving or not reviving, but actually giving life to the Zimmermann trumpet concerto in the minds of everyone around. And so is it surprising to you that now a lot of people that are 18, 20, 25 pick this piece up and, you know, they might have their difficulties, but it's not viewed as, as what it was? How does that for you? I don't know.
1: Well, I think that is a true step forward. And, and you know, because there is a real piece of music and, and I think it's great. I mean, it has really become repertoire. And it, it's, it's so clearly a piece that speaks to, to audiences. And I've had it programmed with, with great, huge, big symphonies because in and, and clever programming they know, they, well, here's a piece that will actually, can take it, you know, it can take it standing there next to the Leningrad Symphony or, or, or Mahler Nine, or, you know, and, and it still makes an impact. It's a fantastic piece. And, and, uh, and it's a piece that, you know, a, a great conductor or, or an orchestra will consider next to the Alban Berg Violin Concerto, or, uh, whereas a lot of our previous pieces are, are not which doesn't mean that they are invalid. You know, music is a practical thing and a, and a sign and a time. And I, I love playing the t- Tomasi. I love playing the Jolivet. And we should we should uh, treasure, I mean, all this talk about the masterpieces, the masterpieces, it's, that's only because we have the, the classical world, the classical that we talk about now, where, where we play is basically a uh, hundred Works that are being played over and over and over and over again. It should be the other way around. We should be playing the Tomasis and the Arutunians of today. You know, we should be playing everything, and then now and again, we should we should play a, a Mahler two or a, or a established masterpiece like Zimmermann, and you know, and 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 celebrate it. We have an opportunity now because. You know, who knows what is there of the established machinery uh, when we come out of this situation. And we really do have an opportunity where, where we can become much more active.
0: You know, Alex Ross, who writes for the New York Times, he was talking about, I can't remember his name, but a pianist who's doing these concerts from his house. And, you know, of course, they have that facility because it's the piano. But this pianist. He was talking about his programming for that season, which had all been canceled, was basically playing Beethoven piano concertos from his latest Beethoven CD, which I don't understand why we need another one, but that's okay. And he said now that everything was canceled and he was doing this from home, he decided to play excerpts from a concerto that he really loves by Stevenson, who I don't, I don't know him, but he said it was amazing and he had been trying to pitch this to orchestras for years, and his managers, and they said no. And he posted it, and it got like 30,000 views. And the response from random people, not musicians, was overwhelmingly that they were excited by this music. And he, he, I, I think in a way, the best thing that can happen right now, without naming names, is that a bunch of people are posting what they think we should be doing, and it's so not relevant, but then the people that are putting these little dots that matter—it's—it's it's resonating hugely with people that didn't go to the concert hall necessarily.
1: We we need to attract curious people, you know. Uh, and we need to be to do that. We need to be curious ourselves. I mean, and we—I mean—music can never be about comfort. I think probably you know probably the the, the record. As an invention, changed a lot of things, and I, you know, uh, because people could listen to things in their home, and then they, oh, how nice to go and hear the same thing, and um, because I, I have an illusion that I un- understand it, uh, um, and and we we are underestimating people's intelligence by by repeating and repeating and repeating, and you know, why is it that? modern art, visual art and, and modern dance has been so good at reinventing themselves and there are long lines out of, outside MoMA in New York. And, and, when, and when we do something that's new, people say, oh no, I don't, I don't understand that. You know, we, there's something in our, our way of, of creating ivory towers. We have, we have dug a big hole for music.
0: I I always say that we've made a huge critical mistake in the music community. And to some degree, the uh, museums have made a similar mistake. But the thing is, no matter how much you talk about a piece of art, it's still just there on the wall and you can ignore what is being said. But the huge mistake that I find is the pre-concert talk has become about sit now, children, I'm gonna explain to you something that's so difficult that I'm gonna make these incredibly naive versions of what you're about to experience. I, I was in a concert in Montreal Symphony with Ken Nagano when I was a student and he came out to the audience and they were doing Boulez notation. You know, the orchestra tuned, we're all ready to watch. It's a beautiful setup. And he spent, I kid you not, 20 minutes comparing what we were about to listen to Shepherd's Pie. And the only reason he did it, because if it had been a good explanation, that's fine but he thought that using the word layered was too difficult for some reason for an audience to understand. So he had to say, you know how Shepherd's Pie has peas. And in the end, you're, you're completely right. As an educated audience member, I felt condescended to, but if I did not care enough, if I was just there for the experience, I would have felt so bored. I would have felt that I had walked into, instead of a date, an academic symposium, and I would have totally thought, well, I didn't understand it. When the reality is you didn't need to.
1: Yeah. And to return to what, what, what opportunities we have now, because I think, you know, the, the record, first it made people uh, look for the comfort zone, I think. And then the record became, you know, I profited from it I, when the record was the, the, the stamp of approval. Oh, here is this guy. I mean, I can tell you the, the day I, I had signed my Phillips contract, I had much more important invitations. It was like I had become a much better trumpet player just overnight. <laughs> and I had much better contracts and much bigger fees and, and it was a stamp of approval. And then slowly then there was, a, it's degraded. It's everybody technically can, it's much easier to make a record and the record companies as we knew them are no more the power houses that they were. Uh, it was deciding the whole business. Well, that has faded, and now we have this very weird situation. So I think we could, out of the ashes, if you like, have a, 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 a new kind of concert life where it's much more depending on people's own, I mean, it, it also asks something out of the uh, audience, but audience is, as I said, definitely not stupid. And we, and we want an audience who is, who is curious. And I think now is the time where we could really, if we as musicians come down from our ivory tower a little bit, and, and, and make sure that we do something that is, that is happening now, you know.
0: I have a lot of issues with the role academia has had to play in this, that it's almost mediocre people, not in their playing or in their technicality, but mediocre thinking wise, perpetuating more mediocrity. It's like, it's now a whole circle of applause for not necessarily, I mean, it's not the lowest common denominator in the sense that trumpet playing has never been this good, but it is in the sense that I don't know if there's any. value given anymore to a holistic artistic education and that's something else that i wanted to talk to you about because i've always thought and in everything you've said today you prove it is you share that with tom and i'm sure you shared it with your other three crazy (laughs) mentors but you have been able to hang out with more interesting people same with people like stephen burns because you guys are your interest in this world is much larger, which is what every artist should have. The, your relationship to literature and uh, art and dance and whatever it is that you really love should not be separate from your cr- own creative process. Uh, when did this start for you? Was it moving to a city like Paris? or, or...
1: That's not even a decision. I mean, that's a necessity. That's, li- that's like, a, like a plant needing sunshine, yeah. soil, with nutrition and water, you know, if we we can't be tr- tr- an artist or a trumpet player or, or without having things, we need to be fed. With these, um, I think maybe there are some exceptions. I don't know. I, I I I and I can't see this as a decision when that started. I mean, I, it's probably started with the way my parents. Talk to me, um, <laughs> you know, without becoming too Freudian. But but and and then you, the parents you don't choose. But then you start choosing. I mean, why out of all the people I met in Munich was it that that Burns and I started to talk? Well, probably because we, we you see similar things and you see similar interests, and then and then already the first little discussion. Creates a new new plant, and that plant becomes a tree, and then you know it, 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 that's that's what human interaction is all about, and that that is what culture is. I mean, who who is to to say what culture is? But if we look at the meaning of the world word, that is exactly it's it's things that that, that grows, and, and 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 it can only happen in my View when, when it's organic. The people you find, the books you read, the paintings you see, of course being in Paris uh, when you're 17 uh, helps for sure. Because also when you don't have any money and, and when, you, when there wasn't any, any internet you do have to look. You're not fed then automatically. You, you also have to you have to look for the sunshine you have to look for the for the water and the nutrition somehow and you you also see which nutrition helps you which is the better which one is empty calories and which one is 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 truly nu- nutritious for for this plant to to grow and it, it uh, if you're sensitive to that 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 it becomes so clear that it's here this this is This feels real. This feels. This is the the thing, you know. I I I sometimes worry about younger people now because this this such easy access to empty calories (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, for for the soul, and and the the quick the quick sugar fix (laughs) uh, on on a on a mental level is is there. It's constantly there for you. Oh, take take this bar of chocolate, you know, at the, as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than oh, maybe, maybe you know people people say that reading Dostoevsky uh, is is good, and should, I'll I'll try that. I'll read, it. and then, and then you get you know you're on your own in in Paris, and you have no money, and Thibault has just thrown you out of the class, and you can't. So there you are reading Dostoevsky and Strindberg. Uh, uh, ooh. May, you know, <laughs> what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah.
0: I, I call it the phenomenon of the sad self-help library. That It's also self-perpetuating. That, uh, that I've actually really gotten a kick out of this with you. I have to tell you, I don't think I've ever told you, that every time they ask you to recommend a book I write to somebody else that's around, right? And I say somebody's about to be very disappointed because everyone's expecting, you know, Zen and the Art of Archery, or and the same thing used to happen with Tom too. It's like there's a revelation of a much deeper uh, meaning to what informs your art.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it mustn't. You know, there used to be this sort of bourgeois way of education. You know, that every you know so they might say well oh read your classics you know because it's going to make you a, a better person well it, it, we know that that didn't work uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so it has to somehow come out of the the the, um, the ambition to read or the idea to read this or that has to somehow come out of a, of a wish and, and it's, the, the interesting question is how that wish is then created. And, and it's often created by, we come back to Tom's way of putting questions into your head. I, so that, that question gives you a wish and then you start looking, what is, what is good for me? You know, rather than someone's, and I think my father was very much the same. He never, he wouldn't say, you know, you have to live your life like this
0: but yes and i totally agree and I, I think in some degree a good well the good artists are the ones that are self motivated to become that but at the on the other hand i also think that there's something profoundly sad in the sense that if you don't have at least a basic knowledge of and as much as I, i'm not down with the catholics if you don't have a basic knowledge of biblical myth and greek mythology you're missing out on at least the common language that held culture together up until 1920. I mean, if you go into a museum armed with a little literature, you walk out a much richer man.
1: You can become the most important person in, 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 in political life without <laughs> being able to read. So what's the problem?
0: <laughs> You're right. I see no problem. <laughs> Everything's going so
1: well. <laughs> uh, And speaking of the Greek mythology, I mean, that was something that was, that was really stuffed down people's throat uh, in, you know, early bourgeois education Mm -hmm. a hundred years ago, you know, know your Greeks and know your Greeks, but it was done in a way that people were not curious about it. And then it was uh, here in Sweden, it was taken out of the educational system almost altogether. And so my knowledge of them was, was, was limited. And then, uh, um, and then a while ago, for example, I, I read Stephen Fry's wonderful book, Mythos.
0: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: And they are so sympathetical, these Greek gods, because they're full of flaws and, and, you know, and they make all the mistakes that we do. And therefore, they are so good at explaining life. Much better than, than a god who says that this is right and this is wrong. <laughs> because they, make, they put questions into your mind. So I, I, I do agree that everybody should, go, should know their uh, Greek mythology, for sure. But not because someone tells you, because, but because it's, you know, we have all these, humanity has acquired all this knowledge. Our little trumpet world. Has through generations of uh, let's take my little veins from you know uh, me, Thibaut, Fovo, and then we're already back to Francken, mm-hmm. and then one more step, and we are Arben, and then Tom, Vacchiano, Schlossberg, you know Jimmy, and Stem- yeah, and we're we're we we're back, and the whole humanity. We have the, uh, this all this knowledge that we build up. But we still need to rediscover. Every generation needs to discover, rediscover, and we make the same mistakes all over again and again and again and again. We'll all come out more clever out, out of this COVID situation, and we'll be more clever for about five minutes, and then we'll do the same. <laughs> uh, we could we could change. We could we could be learn a little bit more. But I don't. I doubt that we will.
0: What you just said reminds me of something I, I heard Tom say the first time I met him, and I thought he was kidding, and then he kept saying it over the years. And I, I asked him finally, and he said he really meant it. He said, uh, do half of what your teacher told you, and you're going to be a great artist. And I thought he was just being you know flippant about mentorship, but I, I, I think he meant sort of what you're saying, is you have to accumulate generational knowledge, but half of it is you.
1: Yeah, and critical thinking is a vital part of, of- taking steps forward because if you only do if, if if the way to remember should be that we we stop future generations we saying this is like this 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 don't do our don't make our mistakes just do like this and you will make no mistakes they'll certainly make even more mistakes and i doubt that you quote him correctly because i'm sure he said 40 percent of what the teacher said not half. <laughs> I I think, but it's it's vital. Yeah, it's vital. But 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 it also, again, the critical thinking demands a certain responsibility. Also, if you if you if you have the critical thinking, well, then come up with something.
0: You know, I don't know if I'm reading this wrong. So you'll have to tell me. I met you in 2011, but uh, very in passing, like a chosen veil. I got a sense that uh, the next time I saw you, I think was in 2016. I found that a lot had changed, and forgive me for saying, it, I found that a lot had changed in the way you were assuming the role of who you have become for all of us. It, it seemed to me that it was clear to you that the baton was being passed very very naturally to you now and to your generation from toms, and that toms wouldn't last much longer. Do you feel that it, that that I'm right about that, that you're taking your teaching? more in in heart now than than before not that in 2011 i mean the master classes were amazing that's not what i'm trying to say but you seem so much more um devoted to it
1: i say i seemed older <laughs> no
0: not... Man, i swear to god if if you seem older for a trumpet player i can't i can't wait <laughs>
1: No, I I think there's something in it. You know, when you realize when when they are when they are when when the generation that you've looked up to so much slowly uh, disappears into the shadows, uh, your role becomes different. Uh, not not by decision again, but by by the way things are. I think I always. I always loved teaching. I, I never thought I was any good at it. I never had the patience or the the shrewdness of of Tom to sort of make make you think. Rather than I'm I'm too impatient, and I just uh, immediately give instead of one question, sixty five answers. <laughs> so I'm I'm a, I'm a terrible teacher, but I always liked it. I even liked it when when I was very young. I remember having decided not to go into an orchestra so that I could assimilate all the things I'd learned and having time to practice, I, I did manage to put some food on the table because I did a little teaching and I've I always enjoyed it a lot. But, but of course the way you, essentially we say the same things, and much as Boo and, and Thibaut and Stevens were saying the same things, but with different words. We keep saying the same things through a lifetime, but of course we get tired of our own words, so we we find sometimes new ones, and 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 sometimes more efficient ones, and and of course we do change with with as I said with when when the ones that you've, it even changes you in the way that, okay, Thibaut is not here anymore. He the one who, when I would call him and say. Oh, I just made my debut with, with with the Vienna Philharmonic, you know, and and he would listen. He hated to talk on the telephone, but he would listen, and then he would say, "Yes, but uh, you do practice, yes." <laughs> uh, so, you know, I would always have that in my. I still have his portrait in my in my studio, of course, and and and. I mean, I always play for the music and for, for my my own idea. But of course, they're also there—the ones you want to show that you've done something, the ones you want to impress. And then, when they slowly go into the shadows, then it's a different world, you know. You be, and you become, in a way, more lonely. But you also then you have to you have to look, you know. Uh, when you when you when you lose your parents you start to wish for, for grandchildren i think it's exactly the same process and it's it's a way to find find your place in the in the, the ring of the tree that you're at at the moment you have to you have to feel reasonably happy in that ring so that you can realize that you are all of them and and you and you the more rings there are, there are in, on, on the inside, you know, you also have to look at, at, at generations younger than you, and, and uh, because that's also, te- teaching is, is very egotistical, you know, I, 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 it's a very failed, it's a very, re- really failed lesson if I haven't learned something. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think it's incredibly interesting, too, that you share this, at least with Tom. I don't know about the others, but there's a tremendous value in... Okay, so I, when I was growing up, I don't think I've ever told you this. When I was growing up, my parents had all these you know, classical albums. They loved classical music. And they would buy by instrument. So they thought, okay, we should have some trumpet albums. And... They went to the record store and they played. You know, at that time, you put the record and you listen, and if you like anything, you know. So, they listened to the Mari sandre records, which is what the person recommended, and they just thought that they sounded terribly dated. You know, it was like that era with the midi synthesizer and stuff. So, there was this other record with like a very young boy on the cover, and it was your, uh, you know, Haydn, and they bought that in the Telemann album, you know, with a Broken Charity. So I grew up listening to you as a kid, and I think that it was amazing for me not just to meet you, but then to develop the relationship we have. But I think I value it more in the same way that I valued Tom, that you are reserved with it as well, that you're not out promoting the fact that you're trying to expand the rings on the tree. How do you view your relationship to students in that way and, and the people that you've mentored that uh, you're very diligent about who you, you know, spend time with? Does that matter to you? I mean, I know that it drove Tom crazy and it's part of the reason he quit teaching that he only wanted to be around people that were taking the lesson properly.
1: With the years, you become also selective. I mean, I, I want to keep... I want to stay generous. and There's one, there's one teacher who... who you know, when I'm t- touring, in, in the days when I was touring, you see, uh, <laughs> we, we, we would be, I would travel with an aeroplane to these foreign countries <laughs> and I would make concerts. And then in my time off, I would now and then give a masterclass. And, and that I really enjoy, but that's, that is more, that's more anonymous. That's more just um, giving like that. And you can't expect, so much I mean I I want to learn something also in those situations but 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 and and you you develop a technique where you where you can possibly make a difference to this person in a very short time but 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 uh, that's one one way one sort of relationship and then you have the more long going and those you select more where you feel that you it's like with friendships or any relation that they're chosen from, that you find enough common, you, you, what you say falls, it falls into fruitful ground somehow, and and then of course it can be much much deeper conversations or teaching or. or I mean here at home, I, I I have the the mama class is one thing, but and then I teach as you know very very little here. And that's, that's on that basis.
0: I got to tell you, there's something valuable about that, though, because the, we, we were here in February, and it was uh, Sam and Luca and I in my living room. And they were warming up, and I was finishing doing something in my room. And everything they were doing was so familiar to me. Not in a robot way, but...
1: Just, there was a Swedish fly on the wall. <laughs> there was a Swedish fly
0: on the wall. And... <laughs> It was tremendously comforting to know that the two of them had uh, that relationship you're talking about because we could consult each other with confidence that we had received the correct information or that we were going to be corrected on something we had misunderstood with confidence because of it being the nature of a kind of tighter-knit group.
1: Yeah, as long as it doesn't become sectarian. (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, uh, uh... It's not like we registered
0: a church or anything yet. (laughs) Although I hear it's a great way of making money. (laughs) (laughs) And since I'm in LA, we already have good president for it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I'm going to dress you up as an admiral (laughs) and take a good picture of you. (laughs) It's what you've done is so incredible and i hope that you know i i i'm frustrated often that people don't realize how big the what's being left is every year because it's um what you said is so huge which is we now have a piece that is not programmed just because it's you but because of course somebody would want to hear a trumpet concerto by zimmerman or Gruber or any number of composers that are programmed regularly with other instruments. Found it funny. You said that you thought you were going to come to America and everyone was going to be so open-minded and in a way they should have been because the original trumpet soloist is an American invention. I mean, with all the band leaders that were out here and um, it's sort of sad that we have to re-import something that was so generously taken by Europe with, with, Love, you know, mm. uh, but I, I, I'm frustrated that it's not being uh, done in big enough numbers.
1: Music, as we see it as an art form, will have to move out of the institutions. You know, music education, especially on our instrument, cannot be to play a hundred orchestral excerpts. Perfectly, so that I can have a position in one of those institutions. I mean, that cannot be the meaning of life. It's not possible. The meaning of life as a musician must be to be a musician and be active and in in an organic music life where a beautiful, great uh, traditional symphony orchestra is one of the possibilities. But it cannot be that if I'm not successful learning these orchestral excerpts, I'll have to go and find a job uh, doing the dishes in a restaurant, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, it cannot be like that, you know, uh, we cannot allow it to be like that, you know, we, we must find a way and I, and again, this is a, a possible way now because we, we, I started to talking about this when I did my first records that I see a future also where there's much more a life of pools of musicians who work together in, in chamber music and in experimental and in traditional string quartets can play all the Beethoven they want. And because they have it, we can't. So we, these pools of musicians sometimes get together and, and play together as a big, big orchestra. And of course, we should have Boston Symphony and, and all, all the greats. But it's not the meaning of life. And then, of course, yeah, okay, insecure, freelance, yes. But we, then we have to find ways of making it as secure as we can. And after all, we do choose an artistic life. It's never going to be the, the everyday secure thing. I mean, tell me about it. I've I'm now had six months of sabbatical, you know.
0: You, 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 have you met Dan Rosenboom? Not true. But, yeah. Anyway, that, Dan's an... Uh, very interesting trumpet player out here. He, one of the top freelancers, but then also has a metal jazz that's, and he has a record label that is dedicated to his creative art music. And that's mostly he, the way he sees it is his freelancing is his day job to pay for these records that are his baby. And I remember I, I Ed was on sabbatical when I was about to graduate Cal arts and Ed, Dan was the teacher, uh, the guest teacher and, the day, the last day I had a lesson with him, he said, you know, man, uh, good luck out there. And, uh, you know, you're about to experience the silence, which is, you know, just buckle down and and practice. And then he said the best advice I've ever heard from anyone, which was, and remember, nobody owes you shit. Nobody told you to be a trumpet player. Nobody told you to, uh, that this was going to be easy or that there's a career path forward. Just you need to be doing something because you chose to do this and then the possibilities are huge because you've chosen to do this and then what are you what's your legacy well and not legacy in that kind of old way but what what is it you're choosing to say with the voice you have you know in that way you're tremendously inspiring to all of us and I I, not just for me and not just as a trumpet player but as an artist and uh, you may remember you told me or not but you told me that you loved Miles Davis because you forget that he's a trumpet player. Mm. It doesn't matter anymore. Uh, nobody says, oh, Miles Davis is a great trumpet player. Everybody just says, that's Miles Davis. Mm. And I think that in a way you've, you've done that for the trumpet because your technical ability is almost inconsequential when you're hearing Ariel. It's clearly fiendishly difficult, but you wouldn't know, you know. And that's amazing. What you've done with the talent that you have and with the work that you've put into it is just astounding. So thank you. <laughs>
1: Thank you very much. You make me blush.
0: <laughs> You're welcome.
1: <laughs> like Mark Gould would ever blush. <laughs> Have you seen this, this brilliant the song he made? You
0: know, so yeah, we were t- <laughs> we were talking about our I, I had a conversation with him. Where we were talking about arts education and how he had for years been saying at Juilliard and at MSM, like we need to change what we're teaching. And all his students are all over the place, you know, Paul Simon's trumpet player and new music and jazz. And he he brought up the song and he said, you know, people can say whatever about my song old oh, white boys, but I made that. I made that shit. I made a thing. <laughs> and
1: he's right. <laughs> I'm good.
0: I want to be mindful of your time, but, you know, thank you for doing this, Hogan. Oh,
1: thank you. Real pleasure talking to you, as, as always. And uh, one day, uh, I hope you'll make me a good cup of coffee <laughs> <laughs> Well, perfectly spiffing, old chap.
0: Yeah, I'll see you again soon. enjoy your uh, prolonged summer say hello to Martin and everyone else